Good morning, everyone. My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors up at the Merrill campus, and it's a joy to be with you this morning. But before we get started in God's word, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. A little over a week ago, I heard someone share their testimony, and this person described that while they were younger in life, they lived the Christian life not from a desire to please God, but from a desire to please their parents. And this person went on to describe the circumstances that God kindly used in their life to bring them to a personal relationship with Jesus. They were no longer motivated to please their parents, but rather to please and enjoy God. And at this point, the person said, that's when I became a Christian. My life was full of obedience and I had no more troubles after that. Of course, the second part of that line was a joke, but that joke only works because it plays off of a truth for all Christians. Some people were raised up in the church and they gained a gradual awareness of the gospel and was saved. Other people have a date and time where they remember being born again. But regardless of how God saved us, when we become a Christian, our lives are still full of troubles. Christian life is not all unicorns and rainbows. In fact, there's a lot that sometimes it seems we miss out on. It's the non-Christians that seem to get what I want sometimes and get to do what I want to do. And the Christian life sometimes adds troubles to boot. Christians get sued, they get mocked, they get ridiculed, and in some places on earth, They even get killed for their faith. It can be easy for us to ask ourselves, what is the advantage of being a Christian? What joy is there in missing out so much of what the world has to offer? Sometimes it doesn't make things easier, it makes them harder. Well, today, if you have your Bibles with you, please open to Psalm 73. This passage is going to help us understand some of these questions and wrestle with them. Psalm 73 contains the words of Asaph, who was the chief musician in the sanctuary appointed by King David. And in this psalm, we're going to see that Asaph was short-sighted, that he had a change of perspective, and then he started to see clearly. He was short-sighted, he had a change of perspective, and then he was able to see clearly. Listen to the first three verses of Psalm 73. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The structure of the psalm is a little bit like a roller coaster. Right now, we're boarding. We're sitting in our seats. We're pulling the safety bars down over our chest. The tracks, they're level. They're safe. They're flat. And this is where Asaph enters the cart. He begins with this motto, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. As a worship leader, Asaph knows this is true. He's been taught it. He's read about it in the Jewish scriptures. He's even led others to proclaim it in the sanctuary. God is good to his people, those who wholeheartedly love God. Yet, this is the very motto that Asaph has a problem with. God has pledged his blessing to his people if they pray to him, if they give him reverence, if they live a pure life before him, 
And yet Asaph doubts it. Asaph is coming to a different conclusion as he experiences life. He starts to think the contrary. The claim that God is good to his people has crashed into Asaph's life experience. Truth is opposed to experience. And it leads him to a different conclusion. In verse 2, he spills it. He says, for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps nearly slipped. If we're on a roller coaster, Asaph is just seeing the first tracks disappear over that first drop. His seat leans forward. He's no longer on safe ground. He's slipping. He's falling. Is God good to Israel? Does God really bless his people? Does he even care about those he's saved? The way that he sees it, it's not the pure in heart. It's not God's people who benefit in this world. It's the wicked. It's the arrogant. God's people aren't secure. It's the wicked. And this is what Asaph causes him to almost slip. This is what makes him almost stumble. And we see in verse 3 what it is that he sees. The arrogant, the prosperous, they have it good. They have everything they want And Asaph is jealous. They have everything they need. They have everything they want. And Asaph starts falling down the tracks. He starts free-falling. Listen to what he sees in verse 4 and following. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble like others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them, and they find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. As Asaph looks out into the world, it's the wicked who have everything and it's God's people who are plagued. Listen to some of the details as he goes through the list. Verse 4, the wicked have health. They don't have the aches and pains and ailments and disabilities that are common to other people. They are fat and sleek. They're well-fed and healthy. Verse 5, they live anxiety-free, worry-free lives. They don't share the plight that is common to humanity. The wicked don't get black eyes. Life doesn't give them bruises. They live on easy street. Verse 6, Their character, it's marked by pride. Their conduct, by exploitation. Because of their healthy, easy lives, they look for an outfit to wear among the spoils of those they've exploited, and they find accessories to match. Like a necklace, they put on their pride. Their self-centered, self-glory-stealing pride. That's what decorates them like jewelry. In verse 7, they've got everything they want. Anything they want, they've got it. Anything they need, they've got it. Anything at all, they've got it. They don't pass up on anything that their wicked imagination fancies. 
Verse 8 and 9, their lips proclaim that they're top dog. They scoff and mock at those who live with integrity. They use their words to harm those who are pure in heart. When they speak, they puff up their chest and they declare that they're the top dog, they're the head honcho, they're the VIP. And in verse 10, others join them. They have a following. Despite their wickedness, people eat them up. And then in verse 11, we have the pinnacle of what Asaph sees. They mock God. They think God is irrelevant, like last week's leftovers. Their theology pictures an ignorant God who's powerless to stop them. At the height of their folly, they disobey God intentionally just to show the world that God won't do anything about it. Verse 12, Asaph, he summarizes what he sees. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. This sight isn't just unique to Asaph, is it? We see it all around the world. We call it the lifestyles of the rich and famous. There are so many examples that we could point to, but think of John Lennon, for example. John Lennon with Paul McCartney is the most successful songwriter of all time. He has a, number one, a Grammy for the number one album in 1981. He has 25 number one albums. And according to one music magazine, he is the fifth greatest singer of all time. And yet, he lived a life that was marked by wickedness. He drank so much that his nights often ended in a blind rage. He was kicked out of college before graduating. His teacher said he had too many wrong ambitions. He used so much LSD that people said he was in danger of erasing his identity. He said in one interview, Christianity will go, it will vanish and shrink. We're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. In a song that he wrote called God, Lennon dismisses God as an invention that people have made up to measure their pain. He lumps Jesus and the Bible in with Hitler, magic, yoga, and the Kennedys of things he doesn't believe in. And he ends by saying, if there is a God, we are all it. Here's a man who met presidents, who had worldwide fame and success. He was even invited to join the most honorable order in the British Empire. And yet, he lived a life that flew in the face of God. When we look at people like this in the world, we find ourselves in Asaph's shoes. His belief conflicts with his sight. He believes that God is good to his people, but he sees the wicked prospering, not the pure. Asaph is interacting with the age-old question, if God made all of this, if God is good and he oversees it, then why is there so much rot and poison laying around? If God is all good, and God is all-powerful, then why is there so much wicked? If God promises blessing to his people, why does it seem like that blessing is diverted to the wicked? Asaph lives a life just opposed to the wicked, doesn't he? He serves the Lord. He speaks kindly. He uses his words to build people up. He disciplines himself for godliness, and he serves in the sanctuary, yet he's the one plagued. He's the one stricken. He is afflicted. And he starts to begin to doubt God's 
goodness. He starts to doubt his own service to the Lord. Is serving the God of Israel just a waste? Have I wasted my life on this God? In a brutal and honest reflection, Asaph does not hold back expressing his disappointment in God. He gives voice to the turmoil inside of him. He's confused. He's disoriented. And he's exhausted. But verse 15 marks a, a changing point in the psalm. We've been flying down this roller coaster. We've been free-falling. But here, things start to level out. Verse 15 through 17 is the bottom of the first drop. And we have a turning point. Perspective changes paradigm. Perspective changes paradigm. Listen to the turning point in 15 through 17. He wrote, If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Now we see why in verse 2, Asaph only almost stumbled, why his steps nearly only slipped. Despite the turmoil of his thoughts, he refused to put his thoughts into action and harm the community of faith. Something was wrong with Asaph's perspective. Something was skewed with the way that he saw things. And in verse 17, we see what changes his thinking, what changes his gaze. We see what releases his turmoil and relieves his burden. The coaster starts heading back upward as Asaph's complaint turns to praise. Here's the pivot point. I went into the sanctuary of God. This is the beginning of reorientation, where the crisis finds solution, where complaint turns to praise. Meeting God in the sanctuary, sanctuary radically changed Asaph's understanding of reality. Coming in contact with God's presence, it gave him perspective. Seeing things God's way, made him see that he had been entirely wrong. Asaph's perspective had been too small, his sight too short. His sight short-sightedness it caused him to doubt God. And this encounter with the God of the universe transforms everything. Worship put God back in the center of his view, and this new perspective changed his paradigm. As we make our way back to the top of the roller coaster, Listen to Asaph's new perspective. He's now seeing clearly because he can see the beginning from the end. He sees clearly because he has a view from the end. Verse 18. Truly, you set them on slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. With this new angle, with this new perspective, 
he sees clearly. Doubt gives way to hope. He's filled with assurance and trust. God doesn't overlook the wicked. He topples them. It wasn't Asaph on slippery ground. It was the evil. God knocks them down. God does away with them. God destroys them in a moment. They come to a sudden end. They're like dust swept away by terrors. They're like a dream that fades when we wake up. Notice how nothing actually changed about Asaph's circumstances. Only his perspective did. When he tried to understand and solve this problem on his own, he was left with confusion and disorientation and exhaustion. But when he went to God, he got the perspective he needed. The eternal perspective, it reminds him that God is in charge and his goodness is a present reality. The wicked have a day coming and it won't be pleasant. With this new perspective in mind, Asaph reflects on his previous way of thinking. He realized he was acting like an animal. When he questioned God's justice in the universe, he realized he was an ignorant brute. He had acted towards God like a beast. But now seen clearly, Asaph knows that it's not the wicked who are rich. He is rich. Meeting God in the sanctuary, it opened his eyes and reminded him that he has the greatest treasure there is in existence. The real treasure is God's presence. Listen to what he saw in verse 23. God was always with Asaph. God held his right hand. Even when Asaph was stumbling towards unbelief, God never let him go. Like a parent who holds the hand of their three-year-old as they walk through a busy street, God was there protecting Asaph. In verse 24, God guides him all his days. During all his steps, God gives him counsel and guidance and correction. This wasn't only true back when Asaph was confused. It's true all the days of his life. It's true for the rest of his life as he waits for God to bring him into glory. This is contrasted with the end of the wicked, when they meet God, they will not stand. But Asaph knows that God is an eternally secure foundation where he can rest his heart and he is his eternal treasure. The view from the end, it changes everything. Going from envying what the wicked have to realizing that he has the greatest possession in existence. He says there's nothing in heaven besides God. There's nothing on this earth he desires besides a friendship with God. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on this earth I desire besides you. There is no greater treasure than God's presence. Asaph now sees how very rich he is. Asaph is almost back to the top of the roller coaster. He sees that like his physical flesh, this world will pass away, but God is an eternally secure foundation and his treasure forever. He's now back up at the top, and as his cart comes to a gentle stop, he sees clearly. His perspective is accurate. The truth is clear. Listen to the last two verses, 27 and 28. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. 
and I may tell of all your works. In the final conclusion, Asaph realizes that his theology wasn't wrong at all. His timing was. God is good to his people, and the wicked do have a day coming, and it won't be pleasant. And sometimes God acts in the here and now, but sometimes he doesn't. But Asaph rests assured that in the end, the wicked will get what they have coming to them. God will deal justly with wickedness. But it's not just the end that Asaph has in mind. He's also seen the present reality. The very best thing in eternity and right now in the present is God's very presence. The covenantal relationship that he has with God is his great reward. It's the highest honor. It's the greatest blessing. Friendship with God doesn't tarnish or fade or pass away like everything on this earth. Asaph will tell of God's good works and tell people of the great joy he's rediscovered with this friendship with God. And here's the end of the tracks. Surely it is good to be near God. And that's why today's big idea is this. An eternal perspective lets us see the best is to be near God. An eternal perspective helps us see the best is to be near God. Well, I want to leave you with three applications today from this text. First, pray honestly. Pray honestly. Although Asaph didn't give voice to his complaint before the people of God, he did, we see in this psalm, give voice to it to God. The psalms in general don't shy away from truth. They don't hide from difficult conversations. They sometimes even make accusations against God that make Christians today blush. And we see this here, don't we? Asaph is brutally honest. He doesn't shy away from his complaints against God. He submits his accusations. He voices his displeasure and his doubts, and he pours out his disappointment. And all of this, it gives you and I a legitimate dimension for prayer. When we feel like God has broken trust with us, the best thing we can do is go to him. It isn't a lack of faith. It's a demonstration of faith. By going to him when we feel disappointed or doubt or let down, we speak to the God who maybe doesn't feel like he's there. We speak to the God and say, we are not done with you God. It breathes fresh life into a fragile relationship because the real threat isn't blasphemy. The real threat is silence. Silence is the great killer of all relationships and it's true with God too. Sadly, every single day, people who feel disappointed with God, they just stop talking to him. This is why we should never shut people up and say, just get over it, or he's God and you're just a person. It's why we should never swallow our pain and hide it and never speak about it. Because when we express words to God, even if they're of complaint and disappointment, we show that we have faith in this God who can work all things together for good. Even through expressions of disappointment, it's an act of faith. It brings us back to God. Friends, Let's never stop talking to our God. Even if we have doubts, even if we have questions, let's never stop talking to our God. We can't actually hide 
how we feel from him anyway. And here's what we'll find out. That through the challenges, through the pain and suffering, we have a covenant partner who holds our hand. We have a covenant partner who will never let us go. We have a God who is not unfamiliar with our suffering. And he loves us deeply. So let's pray honestly. Second, let's not generalize. Don't generalize. We can't possibly apply our small experience in this world to the way God does things. We can't apply our shallow and limited perspective to the way that God runs the whole universe. This is what Asaph does, right? He experiences suffering and trials. He looks at the wicked and he makes a conclusion, God must not be good. But we can't possibly understand or fathom how a sovereign God orders every tiny little detail in the physical realm and the spiritual realm, past, present, and future. Only God has a perspective on the big picture. Only God sees the beginning from the end. Only God has the power to change everything and make all things right. Isn't this what Job learned at the end of the book when God finally spoke to him? Here's some of the questions God asked. He said, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Who shut in the sea? Do you know the place to the dwelling of the light? And for chapters, God questions Job like this. And do you remember how Job responded? He said, surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. It's easy to think that when we're having a bad day, that God is displeased with us. It's possible to believe that when we feel lonely, that God has left us alone. It's possible to conclude that when the bad guy goes free, that God is powerless to stop it. And it's possible to conclude that when bad things like natural disasters happen, that God isn't all good. But we need the right perspective. And the right perspective only comes from going to God. It comes from going to his word and taking seriously what it says about him. Only he has a handle on everything. Only he makes everything right. Only he sees the beginning from the end. And we need to go to God for that perspective. So let's not generalize anymore. Third and lastly, I want you to highlight the pronouns. Highlight the pronouns. This is an incredibly simple and incredibly tangible application from this text. It's to highlight the pronouns in this psalm. And I want you to use three different colors. For me, I used uh, green for the first person pronouns. I, me, my. I used blue for the second person pronouns. You, your, yours. And I used red for all the third person pronouns. They, them, theirs. And if you do this exercise, you're going to see something and learn something that we all deeply need to understand. In the first part of my psalm, it's covered in red. They, them, their. They have no struggles. They have no troubles. They are prideful. They have everything they want and people follow them. They, 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 them, them, them. Sometimes we look too much at the world. Sometimes we gaze too long at the wicked. In the second part of my psalm, I have a lot of blue. I, me, my. In vain I was pure and washed my hands in innocence. 
I have been stricken, when I thought how to understand, to me it was a weary task. I, 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 me, me, me. When we look at the wicked, what we're going to do is compare our lives to theirs. The third part of my psalm is covered in green. You, your, yours. You set them on slippery places. You make them fall. When you rouse yourself, Lord, you despise the wicked. When we start looking at God instead of the world, something amazing happens, and you'll see it if you highlight your passage. In my fourth and last section, I have a bunch of blue and green. Blue and green. Me and you. God and I. It says, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me. You receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on this earth I desire besides you. We need to stop looking at the world, stop looking at them, and making comparisons. And if we don't learn this lesson, then we're going to always be confused, disappointed, and jealous. We need to look to God. We need to take seriously what God's word says about him. And if we do this, we will learn an important lesson, the important lesson of the green and the blue, the me and the you, the you and the I. The God-me relationship is the greatest gift we could ever receive. It's the, the greatest treasure both here and in eternity. And we have this because of Christ. It's by his blood that we are justified. We're declared righteous. And nothing can separate us from the love of God. Eternal perspective helps us see that the very best thing is to be near God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your presence. Let us never forget that it is the greatest treasure we could ever have. Lord, prevent our eyes from looking out at the world and being jealous of what passes away, of what is only temporary, and help us keep you at the center of our vision. God, you are our great reward. You are the highest blessing. It is the highest honor to be near you. God, keep our eyes set on the eternal perspective. Help us keep looking forward to that day where we will not live by faith, but live by sight and see you face to face. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.